4: presented by AT&T connecting changes everything from
3: the small towns
4: to the big cities
3: we bring you the
5: stories that matter
2: this is this is this is,
5: this is.
2: the our american stories podcast mm-hmm.
1: This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today, we bring you the story of the Louisiana Purchase and perspective on what an extraordinary event, what an extraordinary deal it really was. Also, we bring you the story of the Salt and Pepper Shaker Museum found in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And finally, we bring you the story of how an undercover agent infiltrated the KKK and, with the help of Superman, exposed them to the world. And now, Monty brings us Dr. Brad and Deidre Berzer to tell us the story of how America doubled in size.
5: The year is 1803, and four people, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston, James Monroe, and Napoleon, are about to get involved in one of the most interesting land deals in history. Here's Brad Berzer and Deidre Berzer of Hillsdale College with more. So the Louisiana Purchase was one of those fascinating
6: moments in really world history, not just in American history. But you have that moment where Napoleon is trying so hard to maintain his grasp and his control on things going on in Europe and in the colonies. But because of the Haitian Revolution... He loses control of the West Indies, and it takes him a lot of money and a lot of manpower, a lot of resources to try and reclaim that. And when he gets bogged down trying to reclaim Haiti, he decides that one of the best things to do in the New World is get rid of Louisiana, which the French, of course, had controlled for centuries and uh, wanted to recontrol again. I mean, they believed that they could recreate New France in some way and maybe in a very revolutionary direction. But once the Haitian Revolution happened and Napoleon started losing his grip on the New World, he decided that it was really in his best interest to get as much money as possible, actual specie, get money, uh, get as much money as possible and sell off the possibility or the obligations that he had in North America.
4: New Orleans is incredibly important in this too. So in New Orleans, the Spanish had declared that the right to deposit was no longer going to be allowed. So that meant that traders could no longer stockpile their goods in New Orleans, waiting for ships to take them out. So Livingston had been sent by Jefferson to France to try to buy New Orleans and West in South Florida <laughs> to buy Florida and so that's what they had permission to do when Napoleon then presented this offer of buying all of Louisiana and they couldn't get a message across the Atlantic fast enough for Jefferson to weigh in on it so uh, Monroe was due in the next day as Secretary of State so it was really up to Livingston and Monroe what to do and um, They had to figure that out really kind of second-guessing what would Jefferson want them to do. And they said, yes, we will buy Louisiana. And so Napoleon supposedly said something along the lines of, what will you give it to me for? I mean, what will you give me for it?
6: and he does so with $15 million. Uh, Once he does that, we gain an extra 800,000 square miles, one of the largest land deals ever done in world history. It almost, not quite, but almost doubled the legal size of the United States at that point. And that means that we're purchasing acreage at about three cents an acre, which is why it makes it one of the most important and weirdest land deals in history.
5: But despite the amazing deal on land, the purchase wasn't without controversy. Jefferson himself was
6: reluctant to make the purchase only because he didn't know if Article 2 of the the U.S. Constitution, or even if the Constitution as a whole allowed us to purchase land. But there was a huge difference in acquiring land and paying for land. So they they made a, a strong distinction between what we would call expansionism versus what would have been called imperialism at the time. Uh, Jefferson was an anti-imperialist, but he was very pro-expansion. And people in his party, like his secretary or his, uh, the Speaker of the House at the time, John Randolph of Roanoke, was adamantly opposed to the possibility of the executive using money this way and using the executive power to purchase land for a lot of reasons. One, they were worried about what would happen to the American Indian. They were worried about the question of slavery. Jefferson, of course, was adamantly against slavery in the West, Uh, adamantly. But there was still this worry. And it also, there was a worry that there was being too much power being given into the executive so when we look back now we celebrate it's become so much a part of our, our narrative as an American people that it's very hard for us to question it but at the time it was truly questioned and it caused a lot of political problems Jefferson himself had qualms, but he decided that it was worth the risk simply because the opportunity was so great. And as Deidre said, was so chancy because uh, Napoleon was problematic and he was moody and you didn't know exactly what he was going to do on one day or the next day. And here was this opportunity. And so Jefferson decided just to go ahead and make the most of it. And one of the reasons that Lewis and Clark were being sent out as quickly as they were was to show and demonstrate that this Louisiana purchase was worth it. You know, they did have some sort of idea of what was in Louisiana, but most of it was rumors. And Jefferson's own ideas changed about changed on this pretty dramatically. Uh, if you look at some of his writings in the 1780s and the 1790s, Jefferson was convinced that there were certain vapors that the West breathed, uh, and maybe these came from stories of Yellowstone, but that there were vapors that allowed the Indians to be physically superior to the European. He thought that in the West, there were still probably mastodons, there were various kinds of, of ancient creatures still running around, and in large part because of these vapors that were supposedly were being breathed. But And I say all of this because it's, I mean, it, it sounds so absurd to us now. By 1803, Jefferson had calmed down on a lot of this. and. Uh, wasn't so convinced that there had been these kind of uh, almost mythical elements of the West, but those mythical elements certainly helped shape how we viewed
5: the West. But even some of their more serious views on things that potentially existed in the West would seem a bit strange today.
6: They wanted to see if there was a passage to, to Japan and China and to India and find out if there was a way to have a trade route in which America could gain control over that Eastern trade and outcompete Europe as well. There was this strange vision, and it, it's an old Enlightenment vision, but it's the idea that land has to have symmetry to it. So if Eastern America had the Appalachian Mountains and it had the Mississippi River, then Western America had to have the equivalent of the Appalachian Mountains and the equivalent of a Mississippi River. Now that's ridiculous, of course, and we know land doesn't work that way, but that was part of 18th century thought on the way that creation worked, that there would have to be that symmetry. But even if we don't take it to that level, you can imagine what 800,000 square miles of farmland would mean for the average European coming over to America. I mean, this is a paradise, an absolute paradise. The same land had been farmed for generation after generation, sometimes thousands of years in Europe. And now suddenly there's what they called virgin soil or virgin land in America. This this seemed Edenic or utopian to them. And uh, they certainly believed that they had this gift from God that is this, this huge amount of land and that they should take as much of that as they can not in a greedy sense but in the sense that it needed to be used in the way that god wanted it to be used as we see in genesis where god gives stewardship and dominion to man jefferson personally of course was not that religious
5: but jefferson did see expansion into the west as something that was glorious and important for america
6: In 1801, Jefferson said, a rising nation spread over a wide and fruitful land, traversing all the seas with the rich productions of their industry, engaged in commerce with nations who feel power and forget right, advancing rapidly to destinies beyond the reach of mortal eye. When I contemplate these transcendent objects and see the honor, the happiness, and the hopes of this beloved country committed to the issue and the auspices of this day, I shrink before the contemplation and humble myself before the magnitude of the undertaking, and that—that that was critical for Jefferson. This idea that this land is this gift that's given to us to attempt a republic, to actually see if we can have an agrarian republic. And Jefferson makes this statement at the time, and this. You know, we think about the symmetry being odd and the fact that there might be mastodons with possibilities just bizarre. Uh, when we look back, especially, I mean, given Jefferson maybe the the most intelligent mind ever born on, on North or South American soil. How could he think like that? Well, let me put it this way. One way to think about America is always to understand the West as its future. If America is to have a future, it will always be in the West. That was the understanding in the late 18th and early 19th century. So when you talked about the West, you're really talking about America and what America is. There was that much of an identification with what the West was and what the frontier was. So that's part of what Jefferson is playing into when he's able to go ahead and purchase these 800,000 square miles. Part of the reason he's able to do that is because of this great myth of America. It's not a false myth, I think it's a true myth, but this myth of, well, what is the West? The West is our future, and we definitely have to secure it.
1: And great job as always to Monty, and a special thanks to Dr. Brad and Deidre Berzer. History, looking back, always seems simple, but you heard it from both of the professors. This idea of expansion versus imperialism, worries about the Indians, about slavery, and Article Two and consolidation of power to a president, where in the Constitution does a president have the power to purchase land? Big questions then, now a no brainer 800,000 square miles for three cents an acre. And in the end, one of the most important days in American history, when we buy Louisiana territory from France. And by the way, Dr. Brad and Deidre Berzer both teach at Hillsdale College, who sponsor our history segments. Hillsdale is a great place to send your kids to learn all the things that are beautiful and all the things that matter in life. But if you can't get to Hillsdale, heck, if you've already gone to college but want to learn some of the things that Hillsdale has to teach, or your family does too, go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their free and terrific online courses. I took the Constitution 101 course and learned more about the founding documents and the Federalist Papers than I did in three years of studying the law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Go to hillsdale.edu to take that course and so many more. Again, they're free. Go to hillsdale.edu learn more. Up next, Faith brings us the story of Andrea Luden, who tells us about how her family started the Salt and Pepper Shaker Museum.
7: The Salt and Pepper Shaker Museum started because my mother, who was an archaeologist for most of her life, was basically getting bored. Uh, We had moved to the U.S. back in the 80s, and so she was no longer affiliated with any universities in the States. So she didn't have any projects or programs to work with. So she started looking for uh, pepper mills because one broke at home and she wanted another pepper mill. And so we were searching for pepper mills and we would get another one and it would eventually break. and, And as she was searching for pepper mills, she started running into salt and pepper shakers. And as she ran into more and more salt and pepper shakers, she started to realize that you can trace our society changing over time. So what was popular in the 20s, changes by the 40s, the 70s, all the way until now. And that really got her passion going because she just wanted an object that's so simple that we all take for granted, but yet every single household in the whole planet has, is also a snapshot of our history and that's what's so fascinating, it's not a car part, it's not uh, photographs, it's it's something that's functional and the creativity behind them and, and the ingenuity in a lot of them is just amazing. So that's how the collection started. And so over the years she just started collecting more. Now this, this was never, the intent was never to create a museum, the intent was just to find the creativity, how unusual the artistry behind so many of these. And as time went by, my mom started collecting more and more and she would pack them up, put them underneath the house in boxes. And then one time, one Christmas, my brother got my mom a digital camera when they first came out. Now, when they first came out, you have to understand the digital camera, the little chip card, was 16k was the biggest one that you could get so nowadays that's barely a photo you could use on a website so she would take pictures of them she was cataloging them all so my dad would bring a box she would unwrap them measure describe them and then pack them away but in the evenings she would leave a few out and she would say oh look isn't this so cute and we would be like ooing and awing and then we would you know come back home from work or from school and and we would be like, so what did you find this, you know, today out of, you know, the, the, the boxes and boxes of salt and pepper shakers. And so sitting around the table like any family does, we just started kind of, you know, chit chatting and going like, well, wouldn't it be cool to like share this with people? And we were like, well, yeah, but where would we do that? What should we do? And, um, and so slowly the idea formed of creating a museum. And then the question was, where do we put a museum like this? And at the time we were living in Texas and a friend of ours told us about Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which we had never been to before. So we decided to do a quick trip. And so we we came to the Smokies and fell in love and we thought, oh my goodness, this would be a perfect place to place a museum. And so in 2002, we moved from Texas to here and opened the Salt and Pepper Shaker Museum. So she collected for about 35 years. It was a a family activity. We would go out and start looking for pepper mills and salt and pepper shakers. Back then, you know, 30, 40 years ago, flea markets were the big thing. And they were really nice and rich. Now flea markets are a great place to find socks. But you don't really find what you used to find. What happened is over the years, those kind of vendors moved into antique shops and antique malls. And we've been to pretty much every single state. Uh, in the U.S. and whichever antique shop or antique mall we would find, we would definitely stop and we would start looking around at all the different booths. And, and it was fun. It's a scavenger hunt. Uh, a lot of people ask, you know, how how did she know what she had and what she didn't have and the condition? And one of the things that she always said is, if you are a collector of anything, you have a Uh, an affinity with that whatever subject matter is so if you are a baseball collector and you have 10,000 baseball cards you know exactly which cards you have in what condition they are or the ones that you're missing or if you're into comic books or anything like that you you know it becomes part of you and your interest and a hobby that you research more and start to appreciate So I remember I was in a little town called Abingdon, Virginia. It's actually not too far from here. And they had in the summertime, they have an arts and crafts show and they also have like a vintage market. And I remember just walking and there was like this lady that had a booth of uh, jewelry. I'm a girl. Hey, I love anything that's sparkly and fun and jewelry. So I'm like looking around and all of a sudden behind a bracelet and behind a pendant, I see this black and white what looks like salt and pepper shaker earrings. And I'm like, (gasps) and I'm like, and I'm looking at, I like, I look at the lady really quick and I'm, I'm, and I, you know, make, you know, poke her face. Like, you know, well ma'am, excuse me. Um, what, what, what are these things over here? And, uh, and she pulls it out and she's like, oh, these are salt and pepper shakers oh, they're salt and pepper shakers. Well, that's so weird. Isn't that weird? And she's like, yeah, they're kind of weird. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, how much are they? And she said 20 bucks. And I was like, 20 bucks. Oh, okay. I'll give you 15. And she was like, okay, I'll take it. Inside, my heart was racing because I'd always heard about these earrings that are salt and pepper shakers. Literally, they're salt and pepper shaker earrings. They're the, the screwback, you know, old fashioned. So, you know, they're dated 40, 50s, you know, and, and the screwback thingy. And I'm like, inside, I'm jumping in. Outside, I'm just like, cool. You know, like, oh, you know, I mean, I would have paid 50 bucks for these. But I just remember, and I'm like running back to my mom, like, you won't believe what I found. (laughs) And so little moments like that, but there are so many, what's amazing about salt and pepper shakers is you get surprised. Even after so many years of collecting salt and pepper shakers, we'll still run into shakers we've never seen before and just be completely blown away. So like some of the favorites are Mount St. Helen. So they actually make, The Mount St. Helen volcano mountain out of the ashes of Mount St. Helen, and it shows the volcano before it exploded and after it exploded. So the the part that exploded, the top part, is one shaker and then the rest of the mountain is the other shaker. Uh, And then things like, I like, a lot of things are interactive also. So there is the Mona Lisa and so the Mona Lisa lady, she is the salt. You take her out of the frame and the frame is the pepper. I mean, just that ingenuity, just that surprise. And you just go like, oh, my goodness, who would have thought? And and it, so it's always a surprise. It always, always brings a smile to your face uh, and and something you just want to share with others. And it was just neat because the other thing about going to antique shops and antique malls when you're when you're a younger person, you're going with somebody who are in their you know 50s or 60s or something like that, because that's about the age of my parents were. Um, is they you'll run into like I would go with my dad, and you would run into tools, and I would be like, Hey, dad, what's this for? And then he would say, Oh, well, this would be used at a farm or on a ranch or in a factory or blah 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 kind of a thing. So. That's one of the fun things about going to antique shops and antique malls is it's walking down our history as a culture, as humans. Look at all these things that used to be used. All those things are part of our history and legacy. And uh, and I think they're getting forgotten, but it's it was just part of the, the extra bonus of the adventures of going uh, in search of salt and pepper shakers is also to look back at our, our history, uh, in, in this planet. In searching for salt and pepper shakers, you, you also get to see not only antique shops and antique malls, but you see the small towns also. So the reason why we traveled so much is my mom, my dad, and I made jewelry. We would go to arts and craft shows around the country. And those shows are usually on the weekends. So during the week we would be uh, going from one location to another and it would usually be you know, going from one state to another. So from Indiana to Ohio or to Pennsylvania or Michigan and all of this during the summertime. So during the week it would give us a great opportunity to uh, look for antique shops, antique malls. And a lot of those places are found in the hearts and and, in the main streets of these little towns in the middle of nowhere in these states. So you had to get off the interstate and start searching. I remember this one place, uh, it's outside of Cincinnati, it's called Metamora, and it's famous for being one of the last places that has a canal. And so before roads like the interstates and before the railroad, they started using canals and canal boats that were drawn by horses, and so you would, you would have your goods like your corn and, and things like that, and you would pile it on this boat and you would go around. So I, as you know, researching because it's you know sometimes it's fun just to go down these rabbit holes. It would be like you know why in the middle of nowhere Ohio is there this town that had this amazing courthouse and these beautiful church and all these gorgeous Victorian houses but it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, where do these people make money? And then it turns out they were a canal town. Also, as you look around in a map, just take, just pull out a regular map, any map. It doesn't matter what map and start looking at the little towns. And there are certain words in the town that will have a reference to salt. And that's pretty interesting because it turns out that a lot of the roads that we use were roads used for commerce. And one of the main things that was sold and traded was salt because without salt humans can't live without salt your food would spoil because this is before refrigeration so it was a very important item and mineral that you needed so you have like saltville which of course it's a pretty basic obvious name Uh, you have saltville and then you have all these other names that of towns that you can see, like anything that has lick on it, L-I-C-K, it has to do with a salt lick. That's because animals used to go there and they would lick the salt because they need the salt. The thing about salt and pepper shakers, it's like an onion. So it's not only these containers for salt and pepper. You start to peel one layer of the onion and then another layer, and you get into more and more history. The Romans had a whole road their own interstate. It would be like Interstate 40 kind of a thing called the, the, uh, the Saltavia. And that was a road that was only having, having to do with commerce of salt. There's a, a time when salt was more expensive than gold. So it's really amazing when you start to go into the history of something that we all take for granted, that's salt. And then with pepper, that's also another fascinating thing. Because if it wasn't for pepper, Columbus would never have gotten on a ship and tried to cross the Atlantic to get to the Indies. Because he ended up running into what he later called the West Indies because he was trying to find India and the spice islands because he was in search of pepper, as well as cinnamon and all of these other spices uh, that we now take for granted, but it's so rich and flavorful. So it's, it's just amazing what something so insignificant as a container of salt and pepper, what they actually represent. The creation, the forming of salt and pepper shakers is very American in the sense of, I mean, there's always been a container for for salt, but uh, back in 1909, 1910, 1911, around that time, Morton, a gentleman by the name of Morton in Chicago uh, and Detroit area, Uh, He came up with an additive that would help coat the little crystals of salt and allow it to pour. And that's when the Morton Salt Company became so famous with their slogan of when it rains, it pours. He, by finding an additive and and creating this type of salt, he created a boom for salt shakers. And, And so that created a whole industry. And so you you have all these salt and pepper shakers from the the early 1920s and 30s kind of thing, but then World War II happened, and with World War II there is the occupation of Japan, which is really amazing because what happened with the occupation of Japan is the American government decided that they wanted to kickstart the Japanese economy. So they sent representatives from Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, from all these factories of uh, goods like teacups and and kettles and dishes and, and things like that. Pottery, porcelain, because Japan is very famous for its porcelain and pottery and artistry. So they sent these representatives over there to kickstart those factories back up again for only the American market. So they were creating items to be sold back in the United States. World War II is over. Now you have all of these servicemen that are coming back home. They have been traveling all over the world. So they come back home and everybody's pumped up. There's a new energy in the U S. This is in the late forties, early fifties. You start to get into the, the tradition of the road trip. Let's get the family, everybody on the car and let's go. So they go Route 66 is born. Going to Florida is the big tradition as well. And along the way, they have to buy souvenirs. And what do they end up buying? Salt and pepper shakers, because it's also helping an economy getting boomed and and coming up as well. So again, there's all of this history uh, that is surrounded in something that we all take for granted that's sitting at your table. And it's just incredible how how one thing is, is connected to another through uh, uh, something as simple as salt and pepper. We have a lot of people that will come out of the museum and they were like, oh my gosh, I saw this shaker that I haven't seen since I was five years old because my great-great aunt, she had them. And, and, and it brings these memories to people, it, it brings these family connections that they hadn't thought about in so long and then they always go like I wonder what happened with that set or they have it or you know they'll say I still have it I can't believe I saw it here and it's just so neat to bring that connection back to to the family because this is this is a labor of love it it's not like we're you know, making riches here. We are sharing a, a passion and a love of, of a, an item that we don't think should be taken for granted because everybody has it in their house. Not everybody has a, a, a computer or, or has a purse or whatever, but everybody has this one thing that connects us all together. And that's so cool. My mother passed away in 2015. She passed away at the age of 80. She had a very full life, uh, a very rich and full life. I always said that if she had seven lifetimes in one lifetime, she would take everything to the extreme. So so she didn't let anything go to waste. She hated napping or, or sleeping because she didn't want to miss anything. Anytime we would go on an airplane, you know, she would always be looking out the window. It's like the, the, she just loved it. She had a passion for living and a passion for this world and a, a passion for for this planet. So she always lived to the fullest. And so when she passed away, she was the driving force behind all of this. And so for me personally, it was a stumbling block because all of a sudden it was like my motors were taken away from me. I, I started drifting, I didn't know where I'm going. Now what? But being in the museum, definitely she's here. This is part of her, it will always be a part of her. And just continuing to make her dream an everyday thing. It's not that she ever wanted to become famous or be known like, oh, she's a salt lady. No, she just wanted to share with everybody what she found fascinating You know, and she would say, Look at this, isn't this fascinating? And and she would just get you contagious about whatever interesting thing that she found. And there's so much hiding behind salt and pepper shakers. And so so it's been really neat and an honor to be able to continue her legacy with salt and pepper shakers.
1: And great job as always to Faith and a special thanks to Andrea Luden, and also to her mom for, well, creating a daughter like she did and teaching her about the things that matter in life, which is to have passion for the small things and family. And my goodness, to have a daughter talk about a mother this way, it doesn't get better, folks. She had a passion for living, a passion for this world. And by the way, though she got lost for a little bit, it became clear what she was going to do with the rest of her life and listen to Andrea's passion it's infectious. By the way, you can go to Gatlinburg and visit the museum. 20,000 salt and pepper shaker sets, 1,500 pepper mills, and a whole lot of stories about this country. And by the way, what you're listening to is entirely free of charge, but it is not free to make. And if you love what we're up to here, which is essentially telling the story of America to Americans, well, we'd love for you to join us, and that means sending stories our way, so many of our very best or listeners stories, and sending donations our way. We are a 501C3, and all of your gifts would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Become a member of the Our American Stories Nation. Go to ourAmericanstories.com. Send a story our way, send a donation our way. And by the way, we've got some great swag, some great coffee mugs, great T-shirts and even some really great blankets. Again, OurAmericanStories.com. And what we're trying to do here is just give some good news each and every day, positive stories about a good and beautiful country. Again, OurAmericanStories.com is where you can go to join our beautiful project. And finally, Joey brings us Rick Bauer's story of Superman versus the
2: KKK. Over the years, Superman has fought many villains, including the KKK. Rick Bowers brings us the story of how the hero not only fought this villain in the fictional series, but also in real life. Here's Rick with the backstory.
3: The actual Superman character was created by two Jewish kids in Cleveland in the 1930s. And these two kids were high school students and they loved science fiction. They would hole up in their attic studio reading science fiction magazines, books. They would go to the movies, you know, caped heroes like Zorro were doing great things on the big screen. And they were taking all of that in and they started to create their own characters. And they created a character and a story called The Reign of Superman. But in that first iteration, Superman was bad. He was an evil scientist doing horrid experiments on homeless men during the depression. And he had no real superpowers, he was just super evil. So they were creating some interesting characters, but there was always something about that character, that original Superman, that is not quite right. So they put that on a shelf and let it incubate. And as Superman lore goes, one night, Jerry Siegel, one of these two young men who were struggling to get through the depression, find work, and make it in the field of comic art, had an epiphany. We have it backwards. What the world really needs is a good Superman. And that epiphany and the character that evolved from it came just as publishers in New York City were developing the first comic books. And the first comic books were actually compilations of newspaper strips, Little Orphan Annie, Popeye. And those newspaper strips would be put in books and sold for a dime a piece. But after the supply of newspaper strips had been exhausted, these publishers needed original content. And one publisher recalled this set of drawings that these kids from Cleveland had set with this character called Superman. And they were in a pinch to launch a comic book called Action Comics. So they hired Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster to put together 13 pages of Superman stories for the original edition of Action Comics. And before anyone really knew what happened, hundreds of thousands of those comic books had been sold. And the character that we all now know as Superman was born.
2: Boys and girls, your attention please presenting a new exciting radio program. In the
3: 1940s, The Adventures of of Superman on the Air was created.
2: Faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, impervious to bullets. Up in the sky, look. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman.
3: And a creative writer and producer named Bob Maxwell transformed Superman into a radio show from the Mutual Broadcasting System in New York, where actors and sound effects people would create uh, a radio program three times a week where Superman took on mad scientists and crime gangs and evil spectral beings, and it became a hit. So Superman was now in comic books, He was a strip in newspapers, he was a serial in the movie theaters, and he was reaching four million households three times a week through the radio. As World War II comes, the creators use him more as a weapon against America's enemies. So he's taking on Nazi spies. He's taking on German generals. And in one case, he actually took on Hitler and grabbed him by the scruff and carried, carried him off to an international tribunal to be tried for war crimes. So Superman has become a meaningful character in certain ways. And as the war ended, And as times changed, the creators of the radio program asked a very perplexing question. What do we do now? It seemed like the crime bosses and the evil scientists had run their course. The war was over, so Hitler was no longer a target. But there was something happening here at home that got their attention. The Ku Klux Klan was attempting a revival. Six million Jews had just been killed in Nazi concentration camps. And here we have people in our own backyard who are preaching a similar philosophy and who believe that this post-war era can belong to them, that we can bring America's along to the Klan's philosophy, and we can create an organization with millions of members. So these two forces are very different. One is a fictional character on the radio, in comic books, and one is an actual real-world organization that is actually carrying out atrocious acts against its enemies. Who would know that one day they would collide? While all this was happening, a young man named Stetson Kennedy was growing up in Jacksonville, Florida. Even at the age of 12, he was extremely uncomfortable with the perverse and pervasive racism of the time. Through the streets of Jacksonville, Klansmen marched, some on horseback, dressed in robes and hoods. And at first he thought that this was kind of a club for grown-ups, and they got to dress up in costumes every day of the year, anytime they wanted. But he later learned that this was actually a group that quote, took care of people in colored town which means they imposed their will on black citizens. And it was when the African-American maid in their house was attacked by the Klan for answering back a streetcar operator who refused to give her the proper change. She was brought home bloodied and beaten that he realized what the real Klan was all about. And this young man, obviously being out of step with much of the culture of his time, decided at that point, that his life would be dedicated to fighting this kind of hate. In 1937, Stetson Kennedy became an interviewer with the Florida's Writers Project which was a New Deal program for unemployed writers, editors, researchers, historians, and they would travel to the state collecting life stories, tall tales, folk songs, and fables from common people. But he would record folk songs from blues singers. He would record stories from field hands and sharecroppers, and he started to understand that these stories, these songs, these rituals, these kind of values were what held people together. It held culture together. And so in his mind, this was a great insight. And he came to see that by having this information himself, he could be a much better writer, communicator, and he could tell the stories of the common people and inform others of their plights. So for Stetson Kennedy, it was the injustice that was being inflicted on these poor people. It was the racism that was directed at these African-American field hands, sharecroppers, fishermen, and It just hit him at such a level that he dedicated himself to trying to fix it. And he was working at the time for an organization called the Anti-Defamation League. And the Anti-Defamation League is an organization that opposes the prejudice against Jewish people and fights for the rights of all people. And they hired him as an infiltrator to get inside the Klan. The dangers were uh, very real. 1946, the Klan is reviving in Atlanta, Georgia, and Stetson, through his research, knows this. He knows that this organization, with a long history of violence, is trying to make a comeback, and it's all happening in what they called the Imperial City, of Atlanta, Georgia. So he moved to Atlanta, Georgia with the express purpose of infiltrating the Klan. So Stetson, uh, through the ADL, takes on a false persona. He takes on the persona of John Perkins, a encyclopedia salesman and the publisher of a hate sheet. He begins hanging around with Klansmen, talking their language. He begins attending their meetings. And everything he discovers is filed back to the Anti-Defamation League in the form of a spy report. And he's reporting on some of the atrocities at the time that are just so brutal that, uh, you know, they shake you to the core. Two black couples driving down a road outside of Atlanta in that year, 1946, are dragged from their car, taken to a riverbank, and shot dead. A black taxi driver in Atlanta who was seen giving a ride to a white woman is dragged from his car and killed. Inside the Klan group, Stetson would write reports about their plans to invade a government armory, seize weapons, and orchestrate an all-out attack on black communities. And Stetson is in the middle of this. The entire time he was walking this fine line where one wrong step probably meant death.
2: Stetson also risked writing columns under pseudonyms, exposing the KKK's hierarchy, customs, traditions, and most notably, their brutality. Meanwhile, as we learned earlier, the Superman radio show creators sought a new type of villain based on real-life people, awakening their audience to the evil in their own lives. Their villain would be the KKK, or in their 16-part series known as The Clan of the Fiery Cross. They worked with the ADL and used much of Stetson's findings, hoping to strip the clan of their mystique and attraction by revealing what they're actually like behind all the secrecy.
3: So through 16 episodes, this arc takes place and people are kidnapped, people are threatened. Clark Kent and Lois Lane have to put out a special edition of the Daily Planet to let the public know that this Klan group is threatening people. And of course, Superman has to take flight and round up these Klansmen and haul them off to jail. Stetson Kennedy always said, the way to take down the Klan is by ridiculing them. That is, if you look closely at their rituals, this language that they use where everything starts with K. So the big Klan gathering is a Klan vocation this kind of ridiculous language can be made fun of. These ridiculous outfits that these people wear. These long robes, these hoods over their heads, these little slits for eye holes. They look like clowns. They look like kids at Halloween dressed up as ghosts. So he felt that that was a great way to undercut the clan.
0: Suddenly, they come into an opening, and as the car stops, Chuck gasps at the strange scene before him. In a glade, casting weird shadows over the nearby hills and lighting the sky above, burns a huge wooden cross. Before it kneel, half a hundred men clothed in long robes. Pointed hoods, slit only at the eyes, cover their heads and faces, and a low guttural chant issues harshly from their hidden lips, sending an uneasy chill through Chuck's blood. While the boy looks about him at the fearsome sight, Matt Riggs dons a robe and hood on which a pale blue scorpion is embroidered. Then, followed by Chuck, he approaches the kneeling hooded band. A strangely barbaric company in the dancing light of the flaming cross.
2: Gosh, who are all these guys, Uncle Matt? And why are you wearing the sheets and hoods?
1: We're the clan of the Fiery Cross, Chuck.
0: We're a great secret society pledged to purify America. America for 100% Americans only. One race, one religion, one color.
2: I don't get it. America's got all kinds of religions and colors.
1: When we get through, there'll only be one.
2: Only one? But the Constitution says all Americans have the same rights and privileges.
0: Constitution? (laughs) We'll change that. Now be quiet. Be quiet until I call on you. Attention, brothers. All hail the Transcorpion. In the clan of the Fiery Cross...
1: Supreme authority vested by
3: me... So, it was a very different kind of program for kids. It was very revolutionary for its time. In the end, it was extremely successful. The media praise that flowed in was extraordinary. Industry groups hailed Superman as a hero for tolerance. Education groups said, now we see that these characters can play. A positive role. Newspapers wrote laudatory articles, some of them saying that this is great for kids, but maybe their parents should listen to it as well. There are stories that uh, come from actual Klansmen that tell the story of how their kids would listen to that show and then act it out. So one kid would put on a Superman outfit, the other one would put a pillowcase over their head and wrap a sheet around themselves, and then Superman would grab the white-sheeted kid and, you know, drag him off to jail. Now, these are Klansmen watching this. So they became very infuriated with what this show was doing. And they felt that they were the ridicule of the world, where Millions of people are listening to this and they think we're a bunch of fools.
2: The Klan was humiliated. This villain's infamy would soon fizzle out. In the 1920s, during the Klan's peak years, they had four million members nationwide. Today, they have only 3,000. Thanks in part to the Superman character created by two boys from Cleveland, Ohio, and a real-life superhero with the courage to expose a villain his own backyard
1: and great work as always to joey cortez and a special thanks to rick bowers the author of superman vs. the ku klux klan the true story of how the iconic superhero battled the men of hate and well there's not much to add it doesn't get better than that folks And once again, thanks for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast.